Make sure you're subscribed to Issues Etc. Type Issues Etc. in your podcast provider, hit that subscribe button, and leave us a five-star review. This will make it easier for other podcast listeners to find Issues Etc. That's me in the corner. That's me in the spotlight. Losing my religion. We have discussed... The attrition on Sunday morning, the decline in church attendance and church membership many times here on Issues Etc. Is it part of something bigger? Is it just a trend with liberal Christians, or does it affect also more conservative denominations and confessions? Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Joining us to talk about de-churching in America, Michael Graham. He's program director for the Keller Center for Cultural Apologetics. He's co-author of the new book, The Great Dechurching. Who's leaving? Why are they going? And what will it take to bring them back? Michael, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Todd. It's good to be here. First of all, let's define this term, dechurching. What is it and how big of a problem is it? Yeah, so the term dechurching did not have a definition before we wrote this book and did this research. So we had to, we worked with our our quantitative social scientist, Ryan Burge, to kind of develop a technical definition for it. So the way that we defined dechurching is somebody who used to attend a house of worship at least once a month or more, and now who attends a house of worship less than once per year. So if somebody goes to church on Christmas or Easter or both Christmas and Easter, we did not count them as being dechurched, even though they probably technically really are. And so that's how we define that. In terms of the size of the problem, in terms of that definition right there, you're talking 40 million, 40 million U.S. adult Americans. And so that's one in six adults in the United States. Just by means of uh, comparison, that is larger than the First Great Awakening, Second Great Awakening, and all of the Billy Graham Crusades combined. So... If you could put it in one sentence, what is driving people away or drawing people away? The simplest thing that's the largest factor in dechurching are the rhythms and habits of American adults. What does that mean? So if your media diet leaned a little bit left, all of the people who were leaving church, the story that was kind of being told there was, well, churches in America have made a a number of mistakes, mistakes pertaining to racism, misogyny, political syncretism, clergy scandal, or clergy abuse. If your media diet leaned a little bit to the right, the story that has been told there has been more of a story of, well, people are leaving houses of worship because of secular progressivism, because of the sexual revolution, and for political things, particularly on on the left. Now, given a phenomenon that's talking about 40 million adults in America, you can find several million people that fit that first story, and you can find several million people who fit that second story. However, when you really zoom out and you look at the top reasons why people dechurched, there are far more boring reasons that are the most common reasons. For example, the number one reason why people dechurched is they moved. Number two, attendance was inconvenient. Number three, they had some kind of family change, a marriage, a divorce, the birth of a child, a remarriage, these kinds of things. So in the book, we talk, the book, The Great Dechurching, 
by myself and Jim Davis, we talked about two different kinds of dechurching. People who left for casual reasons. So we call those people casually dechurched. And then people who left with a lot of pain. We call those people dechurched casualties. So when you zoom out at the highest level, it looks like about 30 million people are casually dechurched and about 10 million people are dechurched casualties. So the first group, casually dechurched, they did not necessarily proactively leave. They just kind of floated on because of their habits and their rhythms. And that's juxtaposed to the dechurched casualties who left with a high degree of intentionality, often with either interpersonal pain or institutional pain or both. Is this a phenomenon that affects thinking denominationally? My own denomination, Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, has watched its numbers fall off precipitously since about the 1960s, which was their high. Does it cross all denominations? By and large, regardless of even denominations, Christian or outside of Christian traditions, this phenomenon has been fairly universal. So the high watermark in the LCMS was 1970, when a little over 2.7 million people were on the rolls in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. From 1987 to present, when you look at the ELCA, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, they experienced a 41% drop from 1987 to 2021, whereas the LCMS experienced a 31% drop. Now, if you want to look at some other comparable drops from other denominations, the Episcopal Church, again, from 87 to 21, was down 30%. The Disciples of Christ, down 69%. The UCC, down 52%. The Methodist Church, United Methodist Church, exactly the same, down 31%. There's only really three outliers to this trend downward from the mid-80s to present. And the first of those is the SBC, which is only down 4% so far. Now, that's through 2021. Their numbers in 22 and 23 were not good. Um, so that's, that's a little bit more than that. But the Assemblies of God denomination has risen 51%, and the PCA, the Presbyterian Church in America, has risen 101% over that same time period. I think the story there is why those particular outliers are there is primarily a story of a shift in Christianity in America away from denominations and towards less denominational things. A lot of the shift, particularly among evangelicals, has been towards non-denominationalism. But you've also seen that come out of mainline traditions as well. To stay with the mainline, just for a moment, you mentioned Ryan Burge. I've spoken with him and I've watched his predictions. And I think recently he put something on social media saying that in the age category 18 to 35, I believe it was, the numbers are getting so small for mainline denominations, he may not be able to measure them in his future research of the demographics there. What in particular about the mainline denominations have seen this, well, it's really a demographic winter for them that should approach within the next generation? I'm not a sociologist. I've been a pastor for 15 years and helped to run operations for the Keller Center, which is, I guess you, you might call it a think tank. So I'm hesitant to read too much into these things, speaking to these things, you know, as a social scientist would, because I don't want, I don't want to pretend that I, you know, have those credentials, but on the street, 
at the pastoral level, my my take is is more on church history than anything. In the Northeast, you had in 1776, 51% of all people who attended church regularly were either doing that in a congregational, Episcopal, or Presbyterian context. And at the same time, 3% of Americans were Methodist and 16% were Baptists. And by 1850, those numbers had flip-flopped. 51% of people who attended church were either in America were Baptist or Methodist, and only 19% were Congregational, Episcopal, or Presbyterian. And so I think that there's some history that's there just in terms of the Baptist and Methodists dominated the movement westward as American settlers kind of moved from the heartland, flyover country in America, all the way towards the West Coast. And a lot of that just had to do with the expectations for training, strategies and tactics that were employed by the Baptists and Methodists that weren't shared by the more formal and more institutional nature of the mainline churches that were dominating New England. There was just some real differences in contextualization, adaptive practices. So some of these things that we're observing here today, I think are downstream from that. I do think there's a little bit, there's some merit to the thesis that more conservative traditions are maybe doing a little bit better here today. But however, when you look at, there's counterexamples to that too, just in terms of more conservative mainline traditions compared with their more liberal counterparts. Yeah, the conservative ones are doing a little bit better, but not by too much. So I think some of this is also just which part of the country some of these denominations have a greater presence. The Midwest in particular, in our research, we were really surprised at how decimated the Midwest was by dechurching. We weren't expecting to see quite the numbers that we saw there. The dechurching rates in the Midwest were almost as bad as New England. While we're on the history, let's talk about the various waves of awakenings and the aftermath and how that not only shaped the religious landscape of the United States, but also helps explain some of the dechurching today. Yeah, well, so one of the things that was really surprising that Jim and I didn't know when we were, you know, kind of doing the more rigorous background on kind of church history in the United States, we were surprised to learn that only 17% of American adults attended church in 1776. Particularly if you grew up evangelical, you know, the story around our country's founding was that, you know, America was built on Puritans and staunchly religious and, you know, religious freedom played a a significant role in our departure with King George and Britain. But the reality is by the time the American Revolution took place, it's just not many people who are really going to church comparatively. The high watermark for people attending church on a regular basis is in the, the middle of the 20th century, really around the height of the, the Cold War there with the Soviet Union. Michael Graham is our guest. We're talking about de-churching in America. He is co-author of the new book, The Great De-churching. So if it was only 17% of the nation's founding, when did things begin to shift? 
Listen to the best of the church's music for the Epiphany season at LutheranPublicRadio.org. Sacred music for the Epiphany season, 24-7. LutheranPublicRadio.org. Psalm 144.1 Blessed be the Lord my rock who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. Those serving in the armed forces want LCMS chaplains. We need courageous pastors to bring the gospel and sacraments to those protecting our nation along with wise counsel and the peace found only in Christ Jesus. If you are between the age of 26 and 43 and have a heart for ministry in the armed forces, call 314-996-1337 or email lcmschaps at lcms.org. We love our on-demand listeners. You're listening to Issues Etc. Memorial Press's award-winning curriculum is used by homeschoolers all over the world. Their classical Christian education materials provide everything you need for kindergarten through 12th grade, including books, guides, lesson plans, and instructional videos. If you're interested in learning more, visit them at memoriapress.com and use the coupon code LPR24 at checkout. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time. Do you dream about having stained glass windows at your church but know they are too expensive to ever get them? Ad Crucem has the solution. Our window clings are an excellent way to enhance the beauty of your church without breaking that glass ceiling. Visit adcrucem.com and reach out to us to work with you on this project. Ad Crucem, established in 2014 and still going strong. That's A-D-C-R-U-C-E-M dot com. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Welcome. We're talking about de-churching in America. Michael Graham is our guest. Michael was just stunned to hear those numbers from the nation's founding 17% attending church. When did that begin to shift? There's big shifts as really the Baptists and Methodists embrace itinerant preaching strategies along the frontier in the early part of the 1800s. Really, things start to take off. And imagine. If you had a pastor who's an itinerant preacher who has 10 to 20 congregations that he is preaching to on a Sunday and moving from each one to each one on horseback and the amount of over, and these are typically things that are done either in people's homes or out in the field or in camps, these kinds of things with no overhead. And these itinerant ministers were paid I don't know, somewhere between one quarter and one sixth what their congregational Episcopal or Presbyterian counterparts were getting paid inside these cathedrals in New England. And so when you just look at the the economics of scale of what was going on among the strategies and tactics among Baptists and Methodists in the early part of the 1800s, it only makes sense that you would see that kind of explosion of membership roles of some of these different denominations around that time. And the fastest 25-year period of growth of people being churched in America, it might be initially a surprise because it's not around either of the first or second great awakenings. 
But when I tell you, it will make a lot of sense. And that is the basically the 25 years after the Civil War, from 1870 up to the, you know, the first decade of the 1900s. That 25-year period was previously the largest and fastest religious shift in our country's history. However, our last 25 years has eclipsed that. The rate of people leaving houses of worship in the United States is 25% faster than that shift that occurred after the the Civil War. So what was going on post-war that, if you could find anything you could point to, that accounted for that rapid growth? Well, I mean, you're talking about Reconstruction. Up until 1787, you had Union presence of soldiers in the South, which created, at least for a brief time period, stability and prosperity for you know all of the the freed slaves many of those freed slaves left the south and you had the various waves of the great migrations to the midwest the west coast and parts of the north and new england you also had i mean it just makes sense when you're <laughs> when the cold country's at war it's not going to be a period where a lot of people are attending church on a regular basis if all your men are at war and you've got all of the various supply chains of war causing people to work strange and odd hours in that for the people who aren't, you know, at the front lines and all of those different kinds of things. So it wasn't necessarily that there was a kind of great awakening, like the first or second great awakenings. I think a lot of it just people are looking to rebuild their communities and rebuild the institutions that are there. And at that time in American public life, what more important institution there was was there in a particular community than the local church or local churches, you know, in that context. How did immigration affect things? Immigration impacted things significantly. So most of the immigration that took place into the United States up until the 1960s was out of Europe. I want to say something on order of about 80% was, was out of Europe. Now, some of this had to do with legislation at the federal level that significantly cut off people of non-European descent from moving into the United States. And so when there was legislation in the 1960s that really kind of opened the United States up to other parts of the world, and it kind of changed all of the, the quotas that were hampering people who wanted to move here, particularly from the East, East Asia, Southeast Asia, South Asia, and these parts of the world. And so when immigration became open to those parts of the world, it certainly changed the landscape of the American religious landscape. Now, we're not talking about large percentages of people who are you know, from non-Christian traditions when you compare it to the entire country as a whole. However, the influx of those things, particularly into key parts of the United States. So, you know, obviously immigration that's occurring into places like Southern California is going to be predominantly from East Asia, Southeast Asia, Korea, Vietnam, China, and Japan. So you had significant pockets of things going on in in certain parts of the country where you'd see a critical mass of a different religious tradition coming from a, you know, first generation group of people. But a lot of times those indigenous religious traditions in terms of immigration, typically within two or three generations, 
those indigenous religious traditions have been lost by the people who immigrated. And a lot of times there's been a change, a conversion into a different religious tradition. And usually in the United States, that means into some form of Christian tradition or another. It would seem axiomatic that the demographic shift that we call the baby boom, the post-Second World War baby boom, would have affected things, would have been reflected in the growth that preceded dechurching. What did you find there? Well, yeah, I mean, you can look at any religious tradition, you know, Christian or not in the United States, and the high watermark for almost all of them would be between 1970 the mid-1990s. The only real exceptions to that, you know, the high watermark for Baptists, uh, the Southern Baptist Convention was the mid-aughts, and then obviously the aforementioned PCA and, and AOG, they're still in their ascendant phase. But besides that, I mean, everything has been downhill really since the mid-80s to mid-90s in evangelicalism, in certainly first among mainline then among Roman Catholics, and then among evangelicals. Michael Graham is our guest, co-author of the new book, The Great De-Churching. We're talking about de-churching in America. So when they hit the high watermark, what changed? Education and edification. You're listening to Issues Etc. I am beautiful because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I am accepted because I'm a part of his family through Jesus' shed blood. Unity Lutheran School in East St. Louis, Illinois, shines the light of Christ in one of the most impoverished cities in America. Learn how to support their mission work at unityesl.org. Unityesl.org. Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Collinsville, Illinois, is happy to support the Christ-centered, cross-focused ministry of Issues Etc. Join us for worship, Bible classes, youth ministry, and other opportunities to grow in Christ. We have a Christian day school for children in preschool to eighth grade. We are located at 1300 Beltline Road. Call us at 618-344-3151 or visit www.goodshepherdcollinsville.org. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We are talking about de-churching in America with Michael Graham, co-author of the new book, The Great De-Churching. Who's leaving? Why are they going? And what will it take to bring them back? Michael, before the break, you were talking about the high water mark for most Christian denominations in the U.S. What changed there at the top of the curve? Yeah, there's a lot of things that changed. I'll touch on three things. The first is you have the collapse of the Soviet Union in the end of the Cold War. So 1991, well, you got the wall in Berlin coming down in, what, 89, and then the collapse of the USSR in 1991. Up until that point, to be American felt like, well, you're Christian, and particularly because the country's number one enemy at that point is now, you know, communist Russia and communist atheistic Russia. And so the most significant enemy to, you know, the American people was 
a group of people who were atheistic. And so to be American meant that you weren't communist. And so I think that's a significant piece. So in the absence of Russia in the Cold War as a significant looming foil to for us culturally, politically, civilizationally, I think that that certainly played a role in people's habits and their rhythms. The second thing I would say is the rise of technology, particularly from the early 90s up through the early aughts. Internet became ubiquitous. Many of those tipping points coming in the mid-90s, over half the households in America having high-speed internet. Because when you have high-speed internet in the home, now you can come in contact with other ideas and all sorts of other things that you may not have had access to before. You would have had to have either gone to a library or sat in a lecture or these different kinds of things. Well, those are slow-moving mediums, but when you have all those things kind of at the computer in your home or you know at the computer at school or at the university, then certainly the velocity of ideas started to speed up. And so the internet certainly sped up the velocity of ideas. And then the third thing is 9-11. In 9-11, you had a group of religious zealots, fundamentalists, who used their theology to attack the American people. So the greatest enemy or foil to America civilizationally went from people who were atheists to people who were religiously fundamentalistic. And so I think that that shift in basically exactly a decade from 91 to, to 01, I think that was a significant shift and not necessarily a conscious watershed moment, but certainly a subconscious, hmm, that's interesting. So I think that th those are some pieces that you could say, look, there's a lot of other sociological factors that are going on. You know, you look at music and you have the rise of hip hop and the rise of grunge in the early mid 90s, I think speaks to the beginning of critique into institutions in the American public and society. And so originally, these are Gen Xers who I think who are primarily reacting against boomer-centric and builder-centric institutions. And I think that the kind of anti-institutionalism that kind of began in its seminal phase in, in 91 to 95, it still has pretty much been building fairly steadily from then. And I think we've seen a significant jump in even that impulse, particularly in the social media age of, I think in particular, 2014 to present. Once social media wasn't just on your computer, but it was on the phone, the computer in your pocket, the smartphone, I think technology is inherently anti-institutional and is probably one of the most key factors in the fracturing American public and society. And these are very individualizing cultural artifacts because people can now completely curate. Many people are spending eight, 10 hours in front of a screen in a day between their work and then their smartphones and whatever other diet that they have in terms of watching shows and these different kinds of things. So when you're being formed and shaped for so many hours in the day by those things, and 
you are the one that's making all the decisions about what you're doing. And you're doing all of those things based on your own individual personal preferences. Think back, I think it was 79% of all Americans watched the moon landing in 1969. And a similar percentage, a little bit less than that, watched 9-11 occur. At least the, the second plane hit the hit the, the second tower there. But how many cultural touch points do we have? When was the last time that half of Americans were watching a single cultural artifact or a single cultural moment unfold? I think you really have to go back to 9-11 and the only other analogs would probably be the Super Bowl. And so it's just a significant shift and we're turning inward as a culture into more and more individualistic things. And what's getting hurt in all of that is trust in institutions. So I'd go in terms of what's happening culturally during that time. Besides those three things, I think the the steady decline in American trust in institutions is a story that I don't think any denomination is not feeling and not feeling significantly. What role has the sexual revolution seemed to play in this? Well, it's definitely significant. The creation of birth control, I think, radically changed human sexuality in the West. The implications of the sexual revolution, I, I still don't think we've really found the bottom on. When you kind of separate the sexual act from what the sexual act produces, and that being children and family, it really changes a lot of things. And so I think it's fairly ubiquitous that today, if you asked people, well, what is sex? You'd get a very different answer today than what you would before the sexual revolution. And so those things are going to impact, have all sorts of implications from the birth rates to people's habits and rhythms. How do they spend their time? How do people form relationships? What's the point of those relationships? And in the information age, we've gone, I'll tell you a story. Um, I, when I was newer to the, to the city, after moving back here in 2010, I wanted to find a number of other people who, who kind of shared some theological um, things, but also want, shared some similar obscure musical interests. Well, even back in 2010, I was able to find six other people in my same tradition that shared some of the same obscure music interests, and I was able to do it in under three minutes. And that's kind of wild when you think about it, but also it's kind of scary. And here's what's scary about that. If I wanted to pretend that everyone in culture and society shared my same, you know, my same niche theological perspectives, along with the union of that with certain obscure musical interests, well, I could pretend that because I found the, you know, the Venn diagram of the overlap of these two things, and I did it very quickly. Well, the problem with that is in a digital world, you can curate things at a level that we've never been able to do in human history before, and we can come under the illusion that, well, the whole world is just like me. But the reality is that 
I have an elder here at our church who always says, Michael, dissonance is a sign of relational, emotional, and spiritual maturity. I'll say that again. The ability to handle dissonance is a sign of relational, emotional, and spiritual maturity. Well, his point being is that it's good for us to be around people who are different. And especially people whom we have disagreements with. And that's the role of institute that the institutions play in American culture and society. Maybe the institution is is tight enough, you know, in terms of its core principles for you to feel connected to it, but it also puts you in contact with people who are going to function like finer grit sandpaper. And you're going to come across ideas and and things that you wouldn't have come across with otherwise. Well, in the digital age, you don't have to have a little any sandpaper in your life anymore. You can just have people who you're wholesale in agreement with, and you can cut yourself off from all of those other different perspectives or tribes of people whom you know you disagree with or even find uh, objectionable or you're opposed to. And so I think our ability, our resilience as a culture has waned significantly in our ability as a people to handle dissonance. And I think as a result of that, you're feeling the the fabric of society begin to stretch. And if you don't want to rent, be around people, if your digital world, it's like in my digital world, oh, I don't have to be around people I don't like. Well, why would I want to be around people I don't like in my real life world? So I think some of that is is what's going on in, in de-churching is we've lost the art of valuing and embracing dissonance. And I think we're, we're eschewing it in real life. Michael Graham is our guest. We're talking about de-churching in America, and we really can't talk about the sexual revolution without talking about a reaction to it, one of the earliest ones, the rise of the religious right. We'll do that next. This week on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, we finish Titus with Devoted to Good Works and then move into Ruth with Intro to Ruth, Naomi Prepares to Return to Bethlehem, Ruth's Loyalty, and Call Me No More, Naomi. Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, for The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, your daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study on demand. Listen at thewordendures.org or your favorite podcast provider. Have you ever wanted a resource to share with first-time visitors of your congregation to help them understand why we worship the way we worship, why your church gathers the way they gather to receive our Lord's gifts? Pick up your copy of the January issue of The Lutheran Witness, which is The Divine Service, A User's Guide. To order a copy, visit cph.org witness or visit our website to learn more, witness.lcms.org. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. Essential Exercise for the Christian Mind. You're listening to Issues Etc. Not everyone is comfortable with new technology. Dial A Podcast gives all generations of your congregation an easy way to hear your sermons or even devotionals and Bible studies. Once you've completed a simple one-time setup, we take care of the rest. All your congregants have to do is dial the number from any phone to listen to your latest podcast, all at no additional cost to them. Dial A Podcast. Extend the reach of your sermons. Get started at dialapodcast.com now. Criticism. I just had to call in to respond to this week's installment of Never Trump Drivel from Terry Mattingly. Compliments. 
I love the interviews and insights because they help me battle the slings and arrows of outrageous theology and practice. Clarification. Is there a point where, without baptism, infants go to heaven, and after which time they go to hell if they're not baptized? The Issues Etc. Comment Line, 618-223-8382. Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're talking about de-churching in America with Michael Graham, co-author of the new book, The Great De-churching. Michael, before the break, we were talking about the sexual revolution. We really can't conclude that part of our conversation without discussing one of the early reactions to it, and that is the rise of the religious right. What would you say about that? Yeah, I can't believe I forgot the rise of the religious right when I was talking about the 90s. Yes. Yeah, you can't really talk about the one without the other. So I'm not a historian, so I'm not going to pretend to be a sociologist, nor am I going to pretend to be a historian. But you know, certainly the rise of the religious right certainly changed the political landscape in America, and it really shifted you know a lot of different positions. You know, for example, in the SBC, the dominant the dominant position in the SBC was was pro-choice as early as the 1970s, but the rise of the religious right certainly had a significant impact in the reordering of the American political landscape. Certainly after the, you know, kind of the watershed moment in 1964 with the GOP and its Southern strategy, the Southern strategy kind of took Dixiecrats who were concerned about and were not fans of the civil rights movement and converted those Southern Democrats into being Republicans that's a that's a parallel to the religious right piece, not the only piece, but the forming of a broad evangelical coalition, which had a significant political impulse, certainly was a, a dominant force in large swaths of evangelicalism in particular, but probably also had some spillover into the mainline and in Roman Catholic circles as well. I think certainly the the religious right was a certainly one of the most dominant forces in huge denominations, the largest evangelical denomination, particularly the SBC. So when people de-church, are they necessarily giving up their religious beliefs? The answer is complicated. So I can say with more certainty, we conducted a three-phase study in late 2021 and through early 2022 on people's perspectives on why did they leave and under what conditions are they willing to return and under what conditions and these kinds of things. Of the 40 million people who left houses of worship, 15 million of them left evangelical churches. And our phase three study was looking exclusively at what was going on among de-churching among, among evangelicals. So I can really only say with the greatest statistical certainty among that group. Now, of that group, I would say sociology of religion looks at a religious tradition from three perspectives, belief, behavior, and belonging. And that's about as good of a look as we can have. We don't know individual people's hearts in these different kinds of things, but we can look at kind of their behaviors in terms of church ethics and these different kinds of things. We can look at belonging in terms of frequency of attendance, and then we can look at their beliefs and compare those to 
the historic creeds and confessions of the church. And we can get a ballpark of what kind of what we're looking at. So of the 15 million evangelicals who dechurched, it looks like about 5 million of them still have a decently vibrant, at least orthodox understanding from a Nicene Creed level understanding of Christianity intact. About 10 million people looks like they're just not Christians in any meaningful way, particularly as it pertains to belief. So for example, we had our machine learning algorithm kind of sort of these 15 million people into people who had very common answer choices on key things like their beliefs, very common answer choices of why they left, very common answer choices of under what conditions, if at all, would they be willing to return. And the largest of those profiles is a group called cultural Christians. So for example, the cultural Christians, they just don't look like they're Christians. Only 1% of them say that Jesus is the son of God. They have a very low view of the Bible. And, you know, other doctrines like the resurrection of the dead, the sinlessness of Jesus, the Trinity, they're not scoring, <laughs> they're not scoring well in these things. And so it just doesn't make sense in any meaningful way when you look at the historic creeds and confessions to say, oh, these 8 million cultural Christians are actually Christians. It just doesn't seem meaningful for them. So I would say 10 of, 10 of the 15 million people who left evangelical churches they don't look like they're Christians, but 5 million of them do. And of those two profiles in particular, the mainstream evangelicals, this group left around the, about three or four years ago, a little bit before COVID and into COVID. And this group, 98% say Jesus is the son of God. Their orthodoxy score based on the Nicene Creed was higher than people who still go to church. 100% of these people want to go back to church today. And, you know, that group's about two and a half million people. And then there's another group that was really surprising, and that's the ex-evangelicals. It looks like about four-fifths of them seem to be, you know, very serious about their faith still, even though none of them are willing to return to an evangelical expression of the faith. Now, 79% of them are willing to go to a different Christian tradition. So... Yeah, it, it's in short, you know, in terms of the religious life of the dechurched, it's complicated. There's certainly a lot of vestigial Christianity that's there, even for the people who are deeply unorthodox, but it's complicated. What has the church growth of the missional movement, as I think it kind of finally landed on its kind of its orientation across denominations, what effect did that have in stemming? Those who were advocates of it would say, well, we stemmed what would have been a, a more steep decline. What did you find there? Yeah, so I think you have kind of two big phases in the missional church movement. You had one, and each, and you could probably look at different tribes even within each of those two phases. I would say in the early aughts, early mid-aughts, you had a significant growth in what you'd call church planting the kind of church planting movements. You also had parallel to that, you had the kind of seeker sensitive model that was common among folks like Rick Warren and Willow Creek with Bill Hybels, where it was based on a lot of, oh, well, we're going to plant really large consumer centric churches 
in rapidly growing suburbs based on demographic data that we find in the the census. And then the third stream that was probably happening at that same time was the emergent church movement. So I would say that all three of those streams were all in some ways drawing from some of the missional streams and literature, but they were doing it with on different operating systems. Maybe it's the same software, but it's a different operating system. So, you know, and you can trace out the trajectory of each one of those three movements. You know, the emergent church movement doesn't exist anymore. The church planting movement has continued, but matured, probably slowed down. And then the church growth movement has had a lot of challenges, but I still think it's very much with us today, particularly in non-denominational megachurch settings. I think there's a lot of churches that are still kind of running that kind of playbook of the kind of cold play and a TED talk kind of playbook. Now, I think the missional church movement has had a second wind and looks different today than what it did at that time. I would look to somebody like Tim Keller, Presbyterian pastor in New York City, um, who passed away this year, as a key figure in that movement in the last decade. And so the emphasis there being on interdisciplinary contextualization and encouraging clergy to really deeply understand their contexts, take their contexts seriously, and seek to communicate the gospel in comprehensible ways to that particular context. So I think in in that you see, you know, the rise of things like city to city, church planting network, the rise of Acts 29 church planting network, and both those in more in evangelical contexts. And then you have some similar renewal movements in in some of the mainline traditions as well. I'm Todd Wilkin. You're connected to Issues Etc. We're talking to Michael Graham, co-author of the new book, The Great De-Churching, Who's Leaving, Why They Are Going, and What It Will Take to Bring Them Back. Just in time for Valentine's Day, Ad Crusom has added some new jewelry to its online store. You'll find a wide assortment of jewelry, including cross, trinity, and Luther Rose necklaces and earring sets at adcrusom.com, A-D-C-R-U-C-E-M.com. When we come back... What role does the megachurch play in dechurching? an easy way for you to help us cast ChristNet on the internet. Subscribe, rate, and review the Issues Etc. podcast with your podcast provider. Type Issues Etc. in your podcast provider, hit the subscription button, and leave us a five-star review. This will make it easier for other podcast listeners to find Issues Etc. Help us reach more listeners in 2024. Subscribe, rate, and review Issues Etc. today. We know that you want to build your family on the right foundation from the very start, the foundation of Jesus Christ. Concordia Publishing House offers more than 8,000 products for churches, schools, and homes, dedicated customer service, and an experienced staff to help you focus on what matters most. 
Click to connect at cph.org. Concordia Publishing House. Listening, responding, providing for God's people. Concordia Publishing House. cph.org. Teaching your student to read should not be complicated. Memoria Press's phonics uses common sense and the classical approach with their First Start Reading program for the most effective and efficient way to teach your child how to read. If you're interested in learning more, visit them at memoriapress.com and use the coupon code LPR24 at checkout. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time. For your next family vacation, consider Our Beach House, a charming three-bedroom vacation rental on beautiful Siesta Key. Just off Sarasota, Florida, Siesta Key Beach, consistently voted America's best, is just 100 steps away. Whether you're watching the sunset over the Gulf of Mexico or frolicking in the warm surf, you and your family will fall in love with Siesta Key. Check us out at SiestaKeyRentalGenie.com or call Virginia at 941-266-1858. Equipping the priesthood of all believers, you're listening to Issues Etc. Issues Etc. guest Dr. Ben Mays of Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. Here's what Martin Luther says about the pastoral office. My pastor is practicing the virtue that increases God's kingdom, fills heaven with saints, plunders hell, robs the devil, wards off death, represses sin, preserves peace and unity, and plants all kinds of virtue in the people. In a word, he is making a new world. He builds not a poor temporary house, but an eternal and beautiful paradise in which God himself is glad to dwell. We are calling good men to step up. Come to Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. Learn more about studying for the vocation of pastor at ctsfw.edu or call 1-800-481-2155. Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're talking about de-churching in America with Michael Graham, co-author of the book, The Great De-churching. Michael, what role does the megachurch play in all of this? Well, I think what you what you're seeing in de-churching and what you're seeing in the megachurch don't look all that different. And let me explain what I mean by that. I think you're dealing with just trends in some ways in just religious economy. So the megachurch saw in perhaps rightly, perhaps, you know, I don't think necessarily rightly theologically or missiologically, but I think rightly it understood that, oh, well, the church is an institution, but it's also in some ways in the marketplace of ideas. Therefore, we're going to try to create a least common denominator approach that will appeal to as many as possible with as little friction as possible. Now, I don't want to say that every megachurch is that way. What I'm saying is the center of mass of you know megachurches in America trend that direction versus other directions of, of churches that aren't necessarily trying to do that thing. Now, I do think the challenge with the megachurch movement is there's ostensibly no walls 
the pastors don't know who's in, who's out, who's there, who's not. And it can be very difficult. There's only a handful of mega churches that I think are actually running a polity structure where they have elders, where the elders actually know all of the people who are there and they actually have membership processes and these kinds of things. So the mega church is what Jim and I call a low wall religious environment. To juxtapose that, there are other religious environments that are very high wall. So at the most extreme, you would have kind of authority cults where there's a lot of control that's exerted by you know religious leaders and where the religious leaders are overextending the extent to which they're exerting influence in people's lives. And then in between that, I think is a, is a healthier sweet spot from a missiological and ecclesiological standpoint. And it's what we call medium walls. So, you know, at our church, we have nine elders and everybody in our church has an assigned elder. And those elders are regularly in each household's lives and they know how to pray for those folks. And everybody in our church has simple ways. They know if they need help, the processes are very clear about how they would go about that help, whether that's practical, whether it's questions that they have, or whether it's theological or, you know, personal matters. So I think that it's good for churches to know who's there. It's good to have membership processes so you know who's in. And it's good for people to know, okay, well, what's expected of me? I think the institutions that are doing better in American culture and society are actually not the ones where there's very minimal barrier to entry. I think the institutions in this country that are doing well for themselves are the ones that are actually expecting something from the people who are adherents to that particular institution. And so we encourage you know, everybody who's a member at our church to to volunteer in, in some way. And just about everybody has a, has a role or responsibility. And that's how you create thicker communities and communities where people are known. And you got those 59 one another's in the New Testament. And you have to have ways for those, those 59 different things to, to exist in reality. And so I think when you have really, really high walls and are authoritarian or really, basically no walls in the mega church. I think it's really hard to do some of those, those 59 one another's in the new Testament. Well, and maybe some of them, it's not even possible. So I think it was Ryan Bird recently posted a stat where between 2008 and 2022, if I'm not mistaken, people who identify as white Republicans who never attend church went from 30% to 60%. You talk in the book about a new secular right. What's going on there? Yeah, this is complicated. You know, when we drill down on the people who were de-churching in the 90s, they did tend to be a little bit more on the political left. But when, when, we, when we were looking at what was going on in de-churching, particularly here in the last decade, the de-churching that's going on on the right it is occurring at twice the rate of the de-churching that's happening on the left. And so I think you have people who, certainly some people, maybe their ideas changed. Or for other people, their highest animating concern went from maybe being under the waterline 
in the last decade to above the waterline. In other words, I think for some people, the political flag has always been higher than the Jesus flag. And between the internet and the complexities of 2015 to present, people feel a lot more comfortable about saying what they actually think about their own perspectives, public policy, political heroes, and what's most important to them in life. And so, yes, maybe some people have changed in their ideas. When I'm looking at the data, I'm really kind of seeing that people are feeling more comfortable identifying with where they are finding their solidarity. And I think a lot of people are finding more solidarity in their political affiliations than they are in finding their solidarity in their local churches. Because if the political flag is higher than the Jesus flag, and I can go to church, but I, that means I got to be around people who don't all vote the same way with me. Well, it only makes sense if that's my highest animating concern, or if that animating concern is higher than the theological ones, then it only makes sense that I would de-church and spend more time with people who have a similar constellation of wants and fears. So I think in many ways, people are just becoming more honest with their own wants and fears. And as they've become more honest with their own wants and fears, that's had implications for what kinds of things that they're affiliating with in terms of institutions. We Lutherans are deeply invested in Jesus being the truth. You noticed a shift over the last 50 years of asking, is Jesus true to, is Jesus good, or is Jesus beautiful? Why is that an important observation? Well, I think people, you know, the animating concerns that people have have shifted. And here we, we find ourselves in late modernity. Modernity being the beginning in the Enlightenment project, and the Enlightenment project largely being a, a project of figuring out, well, what is the sum total of truth? And so now here in the 21st century, I think the questions have turned more pragmatic. And does Jesus have a vision for the world that I can get on board with? Is Jesus good for the world? Is this kingdom that he is building is it beautiful? Am I going to find these things there? Sure. Are there people who are still wrestling with the resurrection of the Son of God from the dead and the reliability of the Old Testament, New Testament documents? Sure. But I think particularly for Gen X and below, the questions have become more pragmatic. Like, does Jesus work? <laughs> does, is his path going to lead me to human flourishing? And so I think the questions of why is Jesus good and, and is he beautiful, are really just questions of, hey, is the Jesus path going to lead me and others to a path of human flourishing? Or is this going to lead me down a path of just becoming part of a political tribe or a, a voting block in one way or the other? And so I think that those are very legitimate questions. I think the work of traditional apologetics is answering the questions of, is Jesus true? The work of cultural apologetics is more focused on answering those questions pertaining to whether Jesus leads to, to human flourishing or not. Now, I believe that I believe deeply <laughs> that our gospel is truth, goodness, and beauty all at once. 
and committed to building local churches and institutions that are going to emphasize all three of those things at the same time. And certainly, I believe deeply that Jesus was the Son of God, the second person in the Trinity, lived a perfect life, resurrected from the dead, ascended to the Father, sent us the Holy Spirit, and that all of that radically changed all of human history from here to the inauguration of the kingdom. And not only those things, redemption is coming through Jesus's atonement, not just to humanity, but as far as the curse is found. So everything that is broken in all of creation finds its fruition in the, you know, in the consummation of the kingdom of God and the second coming of Christ. And so we have a story to tell there that isn't just a story of you can be spared from eternal separation from God in hell through Christ's blood and his redemption in his life, death, and resurrection. It's even more than that. We're not just getting a new heart and a new record. We are getting a new world, all of it. And so that's tremendously good news. And I think it's something that does lead to human flourishing, whether we're talking about hot button issues like sexuality or what does it look like to have ethics in the marketplace and to relate to other people with wisdom and with care and with concern and our relationship to the earth. Michael Graham is our guest. We're talking about de-churching in America. He describes the Christian situation during this de-churching as an exile. We'll find out what he means next. What does it mean to inwardly digest God's Word? Find out in Pastor Will Whedon's column in the latest Issues Etc. journal. We'll send it to you for free. Just click the red journal subscription button in the right-hand column at issuesetc.org. In the Wittenberg Trail feature, Dr. John Warwick Montgomery tells his story of finding confessional Lutheranism to be the most scripturally faithful theology. The free online Issues Etc. journal, issuesetc.org. Join Lutherans for Life at the for such a time as this Lutheran Adoption Conference, April 10th and 11th in Houston, Texas. Enjoy the testimony and talents of Dove Award-winning musician and adoptee Mark Schultz. Discover expert information and exciting opportunities, and experience the fellowship and celebration. The 2024 Lutheran Adoption Conference, April 10th and 11th in Houston. Find out more and register at lutheransforlife.org slash conferences. Truth, beauty, goodness. You're listening to Issues Etc. This is Pastor Matthew Harrison, president of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. The LCMS operates the second largest parochial school system in the United States. What can you expect from a Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod school? There's one race, the human race. And Jesus died for the sins of every man, woman, and child from every land and every nation. Life begins at conception. All life is precious from womb to tomb. And every student, parent, and teacher is created in the very image of God. There's right and wrong, and we know which is which from the Ten Commandments. There are only two sexes, male and female, He created them. Marriage is the lifelong union of one man and one woman. There's such a thing as objective, absolute truth, 
and it's found in the person and work of Jesus Christ and His Word. To find a Lutheran Church Missouri Synod school near you, visit lcms.org schools. You can only imagine what must have been going through Naomi's head. Surely God must hate her and be determined to remember all her sins and to punish her for them all. Surely he has turned his hand against her and all that is hers. She no doubt felt like a cursed and forsaken woman at this point. But you know, it's a very perilous thing to presume to read into human trials and tribulations either divine favor or disfavor. Rather than God being somehow against Naomi, her husband and her children, he's using his age-old method of trial and hardship to prepare the way for comfort and blessing. That's an excerpt from Pastor Will Whedon's daily 50-minute verse-by-verse Bible study. The Word of the Lord endures forever. Pastor Whedon began a study today of the book of Ruth. You can listen at your convenience at thewordendures.org, Amazon Alexa, Google Home, Apple HomePod, or the LPR mobile app. The Word of the Lord endures forever with Pastor Will Whedon. We're discussing de-churching in America. Michael Graham is our guest. Michael, you have described the current state of affairs for Christians during this de-churching as an exile. What do you mean by that? So when you look at, you know, throughout not just church history from the resurrection to now, but you look at the people of God, really from Genesis onward, the normal posture of God's people has not been to be at the apex of power in civilization, culture, and society. There have been little times where maybe a few people have had some key positions of influence, Joseph in Egypt and some brief periods in Israel's history where they've had some success as a people. But when you look throughout church history, the first 300 years are just story of waves of persecution after waves of persecution, tremendous suffering, and these things continuing on in different ways, shapes, and forms from the margins of society and not from the seat of power, really through all the way through the Protestant Reformation. You have little pockets of places where in the Reformation, say Calvin's Geneva and the Waldensians before that and a couple other places, but it's like Christians just haven't really found themselves primarily in the seat of power for the most of church history. We've typically exerted our influence primarily from the margins of society and through a mixture of word and deed, proclamation and demonstration. And so we shouldn't be afraid of returning to that kind of exilic frame and posture. That doesn't mean embracing exile doesn't mean that like we become Quakers and stop voting and we don't try to exert any any influence in culture and society. Far from it. You should do all those things. We should try to lead where we can. And in all of our work, we should seek to try to bring redemption into the things that have been entrusted to us in terms of our roles and responsibilities. However, an exilic posture is one that always orders its loves correctly. And 
And exilic posture is one that puts the love of kingdom of God always above all of its other loves, particularly love of country. It's okay to be patriotic and care for one's country and these different kinds of things, you know, especially in stuff like the Olympics coming up and all those kinds of things. But our loves must be rightly ordered. And so an exilic posture really seeks to make sure that our love for Jesus and his kingdom isn't superseded or supplanted by any love. And particularly in, you know, in this instance, uh, an overheated love of country or an overheated love of people group or ethnicity, it's always important that that the kingdom of God must come first. You have five exhortations for church leaders in this age of de-churching. What are they? So the thing that we, this is the last chapter of our book, The Great Dechurching. The first of those five is don't be surprised when people fall away. We see in the text, in the New Testament, you have passages like the wheat and the tares. You have passages like Hebrews 6, when they're just people who just seem to float on. They were a part of us, and now they're not anymore. And we shouldn't be surprised on those things. We don't know exactly people's human hearts. You can judge certain things by the fruit of people's lives, but you just don't know what you don't know. And sometimes people really surprise you in really big ways. So if the text isn't surprised when some people fall away, we shouldn't be either. The second thing we say is extreme responses hurt people. In other words, it is kind of scary. One in six adult Americans not going to church anymore and they used to. That's really scary. But I think we have to be careful about how strong we respond to those things. The right answer isn't to circle the wagons, become highly controlling, and relate to people in ways you know where we just kind of retreat from culture and society. That's not an exilic posture either. You look at Jeremiah 29, you know, in the exhortations there during the Babylonian captivity, we're to seek the welfare of the city and we're to continue to engage and we're to be fruitful and multiply in that exilic state. The third thing was being patient. We don't know who's in the kingdom and who's not. What we do know is the people who God puts right in front of us. So, you know, if you're listening to this, well, who does God want me to invest in? Well, I want to tell you, he wants you to invest in people who he's consistently putting right in front of you. And he wants you to be patient with those people. Now, some of those folks, they just need a nudge, you know, to be back in church, or they just need a nudge, you know, with the gospel. And other people are going to need your dinner table. And other people, you're going to invest in them for years and decades. And maybe it makes no difference. But we're not the Holy Spirit. And we don't know. And we shouldn't give up on people. And when God continues to put the same people in front of us over and over again, well, let's move towards those people. What's the next step to having a a deeper relationship with that person? Let's spend some time together. Let's have them over for a meal. Let's have a good conversation. So, but in all of that, be patient. The fourth thing is, and this is primarily an exhortation for those who are reading the book and who are clergy, shepherd the flock. If you're listening to this and you're a volunteer, you're on staff with a church or you're clergy, let's look back at the at the text and, and let's read all of the things that, that the Bible is encouraging us in terms of how we relate to people and how we minister to them. And so let's shepherd the people who are here and 
You know, if, if somebody, look, here's one way that we can do this very simply. Look, if somebody's moving either on the arrival side or on the departure side, well, that's kind of a dechurching emergency because that's the most high risk time that somebody might get out of the habit of regularly going to church. So let's help people in our communities as they're moving in. And let's help people as they are moving to a new community. Let's help that person and stay with them relationally all the way until they find uh, another healthy local church in their new community. And then finally, equip the saints. It's the role of the church to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. Yeah, certainly it's a church's responsibility to create some trellising and some institutions for which that work can occur. So the trellis and the vine go together. You can't just have all trellis or all vine, but it is the job of the of just regular churchgoers. I'm a regular churchgoer now. 15 years as clergy, now I'm a regular churchgoer. It's my job to be equipped by the local church to do the work of the ministry in my context. So that means I love my neighbors. I get to know them. I take care of the people who, you know, God's regularly putting in my life. I'm taking the next step relationally in the people who he's continuing to put in front of me. It also means that I am to take relational risk and God wants me to take some relational risks. So I'm going to do that. And some of that might just be taking the next step relationally with somebody. It might mean inviting somebody to church. It might be, you know, delving into some spiritual conversation and dialogue. But if you're listening to this and you're connected to the church, it's important for us to equip the saints. And this is the work of discipleship. This is what Jesus gave us in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 16 to, to 20. And so we all have work to do. Finally then, uh, in 1965, my church body, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, was just peaking at 2.7 million members. And they developed a, a report with projections going out to 1990. And the report said that they would be 8 million by 1990. Rather optimistic. And no, of course, no one had a crystal ball. But what did they not see coming or anticipate coming that finds us now living in a de-churched society? There's probably a lot of things that they didn't see. Some of those things would be civilizational, even global. Some of those things would be related to the West. Some of those things would be cultural. Some of those things would be institutional. And some of those things would be down to the individual. And then underlying all of that is two things, advances in technology and changes in habits and rhythms. So, you know, when I think of ministry and I think of whether it's evangelism or discipleship, evangelism or discipleship boils down to two things for me. It's wants and fears. What does this person want and what are they afraid of? And I think that when you go from 1970 to present, the evolution of wants and fears in the West, in America, and in your community, and in people who were currently or previously connected to your local church, those things, those things are always in flux. And so some of those things 
are well beyond what any of us have any power or control over. And other ones of those things are things that are well within our purview. The last thing I'll leave you with is Jim and I were surprised at how much hope that we had when we were analyzing all of the data with Ryan, primarily because over half the people who left houses of worship in America are actively willing to return right now. And most of them, the reasons why that they would be interested in returning are really two things. It's relational. Am I going to find good community and good people? And it's institutional. Is this going to be a healthy local church? And where healthy local church just looks like, am I going to find the truth, goodness, and beauty of Jesus here? And am I going to find good people? And I think the answer to that is a resounding yes in many, if not most, church contexts, regardless of tradition. And so I think that there's tremendous hope there. And if you're listening to this, I want to inspire you to take some relational risk with somebody who God is consistently putting in your life. I'd encourage you to read the Great New Churching book so that you can have a sense of like, okay, this neighbor or this person who's consistently in my life, well, they're kind of fit a little bit of this profile and a little bit of that profile. And in terms of being most proximate, and those folks are kind of looking for this, this, and that. Well, educate yourself on those things. But I just want to inspire you that most conversations, even though religion and politics, everybody might say is taboo in American culture and society. I'm not sure that that's quite really the case as much as people think it is. And I don't think it's a relationship ending conversation. In fact, all of our data points to the fact that having spiritual conversations up to and including inviting people to church. These are not relationship ending conversations. And so I want to encourage you to take some relational risk with people God's putting in your life. Michael Graham has his Master of Divinity from Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando. He's program director for the Keller Center for Cultural Apologetics and co-author of the new book, The Great Dechurching, Who's Leaving? Why Are They Going? And What Will Bring Them Back? Find out more about The Great Dechurching at our website, issuesetc.org. Click Talk On Demand Archives. Michael, thank you. Thank you. Wednesday on Issues Etc., it's media coverage of religion with Terry Mattingly. And we'll look forward to Sunday morning, according to the one-year lectionary, talking with Pastor Will Whedon about the laborers in the vineyard in Matthew chapter 20. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for listening. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., PO Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc., is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio. Metro East Lutheran High School in Edwardsville, Illinois, invites you to an open house from 1 to 3 on Sunday afternoon, February 4th. Take a tour, visit with faculty and administration, and find out more about financial assistance and scholarships. For more information, visit the Facebook page for Metro East Lutheran High School or call 618-656-0043. 
Open house at Metro East Lutheran High School, Edwardsville, Illinois, Sunday afternoon, February 4th.